we've been kind of going through the book of Acts, and uh, we, this is such an awesome book, and it's just easy to, to get stuck on a chapter, not get stuck, but just focus on a chapter, where we're just working on it, and just digging deep into the, the depth of the chapter, and, but I do want to just uh, quickly go through the rest of chapter 9, chapter 10, and chapter 11, and then I want to park at chapter 12. So that's going to be quite an ambitious um, goal for today. But if we could quickly summarize um, Acts chapter 9, let's just first start at verse 31. And let's read this here together, verse 31. We really see, last week we talked about Saul and just the amazing conversion in his life, what God did. And in verse 31, so the church throughout all of Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up, walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. And so we see at the end of Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 9 begins with persecution and it ends with just growth. And we want to look at that a little bit today about how God works with persecution and how growth happens. And when we talk about church growth and church multiplication and uh, church planting, a lot of times this is not something that is really considered in a lot of uh, in a lot of churches or messages or church planting organizations. When we look at Acts chapter nine, the last part of the chapter, we see two things happening. We see the church is on the move, and we see Saul, or Paul, is really growing in grace, and he's growing in his ministry, and we see him growing in strength, and he's preaching. It's amazing, like Saul gets saved, and the first thing he begins to do is just share his faith. And that's an awesome trend that we see Paul is really being used by God, and he's confounding the Jews that lived in Damascus. So it's funny, he goes to Damascus to actually... Um, take Christians and bring them to Jerusalem, but it winds up God turning the table. Isn't that amazing how God just turns the tables? We look at very uh, dramatic, scary situations, and God just turns the whole thing around. Because God governs the chaos. God is in control. And I want to really have that as part of our theme this morning as we are looking at this. The last part of the chapter, verse of chapter 9, we see Peter's two miracles. Uh, Aeneas, that's bedridden and paralyzed for eight years, we see him raised up. And that's an incredible, uh, that's an incredible miracle. And uh, chapter 9, verses 36 through 43, we see Tabitha or Dorcas, which is probably not a very complimentary name, Dorcas, to have. Uh, that's why I like Tabitha better. Um, can imagine just meeting her like, yeah, my, my name is translated Dorcas, but you can call me Tabitha. Tabitha was a disciple, and she was an amazing lady. She was a giver, and she died. She fell ill, and she died. And then Peter comes on the scene, prays, and we see uh, someone raised from the dead. Acts chapter 10, Peter learns the gospel. He is schooled that the, that the gospel is to spill out of Jerusalem into the ancient world. Um, this is amazing because in Acts chapter 10, we can see that God is still teaching Peter about the amazing gospel. You know, we, we had a, an executive team meeting here a few days ago. And we were talking, 
And we're just, I think, we're just amazed at how many Christians do not understand the gospel. Really, what is the grace of God? And what is the finished work? What is this message that is so glorious? And the devil really hates grace. The devil's going to really attack anything that has anything to do with salvation by grace and a finished work because it's based on the blood of Jesus Christ, isn't it? It's interesting, although we are not um, witch hunters and we're not really, we don't focus on demon activity, but try to think about the blood of Christ for more than 10 minutes and see how many distractions come your way. It's just very interesting. The devil hates the blood of Jesus Christ because it's his, it's his, uh, it's the, it's the sentence and judgment in John chapter 16. It is, it is where he loses his power, the power of death. And so Peter here is schooled in learning that the unclean common Gentiles are to hear the gospel. And then God gives him a follow-up where he says, I want you to go and, and uh, implement what I just showed you here in Acts 10. And I want you to talk to a man by the name of Cornelius who's not a Jew. Now, what does this have to do with us today? We're going to look at this in a few minutes. But the gospel is cross, it's, it, it's trans-ethnic. Uh, it does not. It is not limited to one ethnic group. Now, I just love the way we're starting here because HD and and Kali are not here today. But uh, we already have with our group just such a wide spectrum of just nationalities already. We have German, we have Polish, we have Asian, we have Hispanic, we have even people from Boston, <laughs> Yankees, and Russian, Russian too. We have Russian, and and it's just great because. We are all one in Christ. We're all one in the body. And I think it's a miracle that a Yankee can come down to Texas and not be stoned. So I was at the rodeo the other day. I talked about it last week. I think the rodeo, how many have have been to rodeo here? It is the best. I think it's so much fun. The the mutton busting is just the best part. And I'll never forget that. We were showing the videos last night again. But the gospel spills out of Jerusalem and it begins to grow into Palestine, Syria. It's spreading. And it's no longer a church in Jerusalem, but it's a church in Samaria, a church in Joppa, and a church in Lydia. And now it's beginning to spread to Antioch in the next chapter. It's beginning to take over the ancient world. When we let the gospel go and set it free as the gospel and not put conditions on it and not begin to put qualifications that you can come to our church if you fit in this category... Then, then the gospel, the power of the gospel, the power of the finished work of Jesus Christ begins to change lives. I, for one, am just not satisfied when, when people will come to something that we're doing and there's no change or transformation or impact in their life. I really, my personal goal in these meetings that we have on Sundays and, and midweek um, is really that people would meet Jesus Christ and that they would leave and they would say, I heard the word of God and I met Jesus Christ and God encouraged me. And if we can do that, then we've succeeded as a church. And so in Acts chapter 11, we see the gospel crosses ethnic and city lines. Um, for the first seven chapters of the book of Acts, we've learned, we, we, all we've heard is, is in Jerusalem, in Jerusalem, in Jerusalem. And now we have cities all over, ranging from 160 miles north to 60 miles northwest to 40 miles south of Jerusalem. The gospel is on the move, and it's beginning to spread 
really in an amazing way. And if we now turn to Acts chapter 12, I just want to park here. Um, We've just looked at how fast the gospel is moving. We've seen God moving in the lives of people. Um, I think we could just spend so much time on each miracle and on each amazing work of God that, uh, that we just don't have time to do. But Acts chapter 12, we see a very unique situation. Verse, verse 1, we begin to see a growing, prosperous, fruitful church that's multiplying and growing, and we see churches being planted, right? And there's such a church planting movement in the United States right now, but we see an aspect that very rarely is addressed, and it's part of the book of Acts, and it's chapter 12, verse 1. And at that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. And I'm just going to read verse 2. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And so we see that now persecution begins. Imagine that. James, right? James, he's one of the apostles, one of the church leaders. He's one of the guys preaching. He's one of the... Uh, he's one of the um, uh, high-profile forerunners in the first church, and he's arrested and he's killed. He's probably beheaded, and then Peter is imprisoned. Uh, it's really amazing to see that if we can remember back in Acts chapter nine, remember how Saul was breathing threatenings and murder. And we we looked at that in the Greek, and it meant that not only was he breathing that, but that was what he was inhaling. He was inhaling, he was living off of the the breath and the threatenings and the murdering that was going on. But we see in the Acts chapter 9, the end of the chapter, that you cannot stop the Bible. You cannot stop the word of grace. You cannot stop the gospel from moving forward. And that is so encouraging, because the mission of God to declare the finished work of Jesus to the ends of the earth cannot be stopped. I mean, how how many of us have looked at church history and have seen how often you have crazy people that try to burn the Bible, stop the Bible, stop, you know, they try to murder Christians, they try to stop it, but what happens? It It just continues to grow. When we look at persecution in the Middle East, and that's something that you're not hearing on the news. We're hearing... Everything else on the news, we're hearing all this, all of this rhetoric and all of this stuff, even on conservative news, but we are not hearing what's happening with Christians in the Middle East. Uh, the Pope, which um, I think this is one of the one of the one of the things that he's said right, is about 110,000 Christians in 2016 have been murdered. Uh, Breitbart puts it at 90,000. Um, either way, it's a lot of people that are losing their lives because they named the name of Christ. But you know what's an amazing thing? Is that that is only profit, that is only adding acceleration and momentum to people getting saved in the Middle East. Because the gospel cannot be stopped. It's incredible. Remember back in the day when Ahmadinejad became the president of Iran? Maybe about seven or eight years ago. I don't know if I got that right. But everyone in Iran was saying he is such a hardliner. Um, there's going to be so much persecution in Iran. Uh, we're not going to be able to go to church anymore, and there's going to be so many issues here. And this is the end of Christianity in, in Iran. At that time, there were about 600,000 Christians, maybe, um, give or take a few. 
after Ahmadinejad took power and began to implement some of his hardline policies, do you know what happened to Christianity in Iran? It began to explode. Um, conservatively speaking, Christian organizations say that there are now six million Christians in Iran. It's incredible. The word of God cannot be bound. It just cannot be bound in your life and in my life. When you and I take a hold of the promises of God, when you and I take a hold of what the word of God says, there's no situation, there's no fear, there's no unbelief, there's no personal failure in your life, there's no, there's no nothing that people are doing, there's no person's flesh, and there's nothing that is in this world under heaven, neither principality nor power, nor things in the earth or under the earth that can stop this loving gospel. Isn't that amazing? It's just incredible. It's really incredible. If we look here in chapter 12, I want to just look at this one topic here this morning for a few minutes. And this is this topic of suffering. Suffering. Um, This is a very foreign word to most American churches. Now, my wife and I lived overseas for over 10 years doing mission work in Ukraine and in Poland. And uh, we did a lot of mission trips uh, to different parts of Eastern Europe. Uh, I've been to Central Asia. Uh, we've been in, um, I've been in people's apartments where there's 30 or, four people, 30 or 40 people in a room that's maybe half the size of this room. Uh, and the windows have to be closed because of the authorities. And I've been in these rooms where Christians have been persecuted. And it's incredible to see that uh, word suffering is a part of their Christianity and it's a very much a part of their faith. I think that we live in such an amazingly blessed country and I think Texas is so amazingly blessed. I personally think there's a huge blessing on this state. It's incredible. Um, I think it's very easy for us to lose sight of what the difference between Logos and Rhema. And I want to explain what that means here. Um, Things, when we look at the world around us, things look very chaotic and out of control. You ever look at the world or look at your life or your finances or your family and say, <coughs> life is out of control. It's so chaotic. It's unbelievable. And there's so much heartbreak and loss and suffering that it feels really to us very contrary that God is in control. You ever feel that way? I remember being in Poland um, in the mid-80s when we were doing a church plant there. And I remember being in the middle of a riot I just have the guitar. Um, I was the worship leader. I had a guitar, my Bible, and I was on my way to church, and I was walking to the meeting, and this was in Krakow. And uh, I just, I don't know how this happened, but I found myself in the middle of this huge demonstration of university students demonstrating against the government. And um, I'm on my way, and I don't know if you've ever been in the middle of a riot. Maybe a rock concert would be the same kind of experience. (laughs) Middle of a rock concert, you don't know what's going to happen next. Um, I remember walking through the park and I just remember like feeling like this bubble was around me and here are these fully armed police with the shields, with the, with the, um, uh, the visors, see-through visors and they got these bats and they're just beating, they're beating students and these students are beating back and there's tear gas going everywhere and I'm just like walking right through the middle of it with the guitar in my Bible thinking, God, I hope I can get to the meeting on time. And just because I know, I know that the pastor is waiting for me to get there. And I just remember this sense, this incredible sense of like not knowing what's going to happen next. Everything is out of control. 
And that can happen to us sometimes. And we can feel like that our compass, like we're at the Bermuda Triangle, that our compass is spinning and we don't know which is north. This is where our theology becomes internalized. This is where what we believe is no longer just head knowledge, but it becomes part of our life. And this is what we are all about in this church. We want, we don't want to be another theologically, um, we don't want to be the status quo. We have good theology. I think we have pretty bulletproof theology. But we want that to be internalized. And we see that in the first church, uh, we're not even halfway through the book of Acts, and we begin to see God begins to internalize, take what these apostles know, these disciples know, and make it a rhema. What's that word logos and what's that word rhema mean? Well, logos, we know it means the written word, right? Jesus is the logos in John chapter 1. He is the expression, the very image of God. He is equal to God uh, above the angels. Um, He is the crown of all creation. He is the center of the Trinity. He is the beloved and we are in him. He is the logos. He is the written word. He is the uh, he is the word in John chapter 1. But what is Rhema? Well, if you look at J- Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, we don't need to turn there right now, but you can if you want. Matthew 4, 4 is the, is the wordage that Jesus, the Son of God, the Logos, gives to the devil who is attacking him. And he says here, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now that's a verse that many of us have learned in Sunday school, right? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You know what that word in the Greek here is? It's not logos. Man shall not live by every, by bread, but every rhema that comes from the mouth of God. Rhema. What is rhema? Well, it can be described as, um, it can be described in different ways. One way it can be described is that God's, written word becomes a personal illumination in my personal life something that the Holy Spirit illuminates to us in the book of uh, Ephesians where the Holy Spirit's in enlightening our eyes but Rhema is also the word of God in my life that I know that I'm now applying in my life in the details of my life in my relationships at my job um, in uh, at the supermarket when um, you know when when something's happening there that I'm not really happy about, like my favorite food is not there, um, you can tell that I've recently had a problem at the supermarket. Go there and like, you guys are out of this stuff? This is like the best stuff. This is when our logos needs to be apply our theology. We need to apply it by faith in our personal life and see God work, and that's called rhema. That means, because the Bible says that we only know we only know as much as that we are obeying by faith. You know, I think a lot of us maybe in this room know a lot of Bible verses, but we truly only know that, that which we're applying in our life by faith. Now, I'm not saying that we're perfectly obedient to it because we're going to fail. We're going to fall down. We're going to get discouraged. We're going to be, we're going to find ourselves in like in a state of unbelief and discouragement. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when we take the word of God we apply it by faith in our life when there's a lot of pressure and we begin to see God to be faithful. Remember 1 John 1.9. It's like when we fail, and we're going to fail this week. I'm, I'm t- we failed last week. I'm sure we did. We're going to fail this week. We're not making a provision for the flesh. But there are going to be moments when we're going to say, you know what, God, I don't know. I don't know. 
I mean, James is dead. Stephen's been murdered. Uh, Peter's in jail. Um, Herod is just out of control. And we're even afraid to go out to the meeting. This is very, I feel like I'm in the middle of an uncontro- a very chaotic situation. Or my finances are a mess. Or my family's a mess. Or I can't, this relationship that I have seems to be unresolved. And in the, no matter how hard I try to work in this relationship, it only makes it worse. Ever been in this, one of those kind of situations? The harder you try, the worse it gets. This is when our logos has to become our rhema. And how does that happen? Well, when we look at the world, we're very tempted to say, or we look at our own personal situation, and we're tempted to say, you know, God is not faithful. Is God all-powerful? And is he even good? Because remember, the main campaign of the devil in your life and in my life is that we, we cast <coughs> doubts on the nature and the grace of God, that we would doubt the, the, the goodness of God. Wasn't that the first strategy of the devil in Genesis chapter 3 when, when the devil walks up to Eve? And what a creep he is, isn't it? Like the, the devil is such, he, he goes and he talks to the wife. <laughs> he has like no courage to face the man in the family. He's such a, I don't know, he's such a, he's such a creep, isn't he? And he goes to the wife and he says, has God said? You know, whenever, whenever there is in our minds a narrative that's going on that is more like, has God really said in my life? Uh, is God really going to be faithful? That is really the voice of the devil, and we need to cast that down. When God looks at chaos, and when God sees what's happening in the world, he's not, uh, he's, he doesn't go into, he's not anxious, he doesn't get into panic mode. God's not on the throne saying, oh no, what do I do now? Because God doesn't drive an ambulance. I heard someone say that recently. God is not an ambulance driver. He's not, you know, being shocked by a situation that's happening out of control and racing to the situation to fix it with his angels. Um, there is, and another thing, there is no triage in the kingdom of God. God governs the chaos, and we need to put roots there because this is where the world is broken. If we can begin to understand in, in Acts chapter 12 that God is governing the chaos, God is really supremely in control, then that will take the scary vulnerability out of the situation. I think sometimes we find ourselves in situations where we find ourselves super vulnerable. You ever feel that way? Like, God, I obeyed you, you know. God, I took these steps of faith in my life, you know. I moved down here to Texas to be the worship leader or whatever, and now I'm like in this situation. I don't know what's going to happen, you know. I am vulnerable. Well, remember what Tim Keller said? That God is attracted his compassion is attracted to brokenness. That when we are broken and when we are frail and when we allow God, we say yes to God to be put into a place of vulnerability and not put up all of our, self, our, 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 our self-defense <coughs> mechanisms. You know what happens? God is faithful to come in. And, he, and I just want to talk about this, how he does this. God comes in and he begins to take control. But first... There has to be this experience where we understand at first that I am not in control. And this is the toughest part. This is where anger comes from, comes from, human anger. This is where our anger comes from. We get angry because we lose control of the situation. Men have this thing. we got to deal with this all the time. Maybe women too. But when we get angry, we're angry because we, we've lost control. I'm not in control of the situation anymore. Human control is not the answer to chaos. You ever been in a situation, I think if you're in a place of 
of leadership or responsibility, especially in the family, and there's chaos, the first thing we want to do is say, you know, I've got to take control of the situation. And that is, I mean, that's a right, that's responsibility. But at the same time, we have to understand that human control is not going to resolve spiritual chaos. You know, when there's spiritual chaos, you know, I think in our families as men, we need to lead our families spiritually, not drive them. Um, I think that, and I think that when we understand that um, that the devil wants to attack the family, that we lead our family in prayer, uh, that we lead our family in some kind of fellowship or devotional in the Word of God, we are just speaking faith into our wives, speaking faith into our kids. Maybe our kids have no capacity for it. Teenagers, you know, teenagers don't really have a capacity to think in absolutes until later on. Their only capacity as a teenager, their only capacity at this point is really to understand love and relationship. And when a child fails, what's the first question in their mind that goes, that's going on in their mind? Does mom and dad still love me? Am I still accepted in the family? And when they understand that, then there's a capacity for them to learn the absolutes and the right and wrong. And so what happens many times, and we see this in Acts chapter 12, is that we can be very easily uh, victims of unjust unjust suffering. We talked about this a couple weeks at one of our midweek Bible studies. And there's three things that suffering can cause in a person's life. Three things. Number one, it can, it can cause questions that lead to deep, um, deep insecurity and fear. Like when I'm suffering, when you're suffering unjustly, when you're experiencing something that you don't deserve, maybe you do you deserve just the opposite. Maybe you deserve the best. But you're, deser- you're experiencing something that you've never asked for. Um, these questions that arise in the soul need to be answered by the Word of God. It needs to be answered by Rama. It needs to be answered by the Word of God. And this is where God takes your Christianity out of the shallow zone and puts it into the deep zone. And this is what is called discipleship. Do we, do we understand what I'm saying here? It's like... One of, our, one of my theme, theme phrases for what we're doing here is, is that we want to uh, be a mile deep, and, and even if we're an inch wide, because we don't want to be a mile wide and an inch deep. We want to be, be Christians that are deep in the Word of God. Secondly, I think that when this um, fear goes unanswered, it becomes anxiety. And, when, and number three, anxiety is something that happens in our soul when two or more things are not being are not being are not being connected. We have the situation and we don't and we don't and we have the ideal and it's not connecting. And that can create anxiety. And so we may not understand about everything about God's governance. And I, I just tell you it's okay. As Christians we don't claim to have all the answers. And this is a um, if we had all the answers, then we would probably be proud, we'd probably be arrogant, and we would not need any faith. But you know what we do have for people that are in a lot of, a lot of pain in their life? <clears throat> and we meet people like that all the time. All of us in this room have some pain of some kind. You know what we do have that we can offer people is compassion. We have the compassion of Jesus Christ. Sometimes people will tell you 
their situation, their problem. Sometimes you'll look at Acts chapter 12 and say, wow, what do we say to these people? We can't whip out sometimes all of the doctrine and all the Bible verses. We can. But, but like Job, what, this, what is needed? Compassion is needed. Um, let's just wrap this up with, with Romans 8.28. And this is the baseline I know these are basic verses, but this is really the baseline of our Christianity. Romans 8.28. And what does that say? It says that uh, we know that all things work together for them that love God and that are called according to his purpose. Now, not all things work together for good for people that don't understand two things, the love of God and the calling of God. Okay? Sometimes we quote that verse, we say, Romans 8.28, all things are going to work together in your life. But if I don't understand two things, that I'm called, and number two, that I'm loved by God, when the Bible, when the New Testament says you've got to love God, basically that just means that you're, you and I are responding to the unconditional love of God happening in our life. When you read the New Testament, you say, love the Lord God with all of your heart. You're like, okay. <laughs> We're like Peter. Jesus, Jesus says to Peter, do you love me? And Peter's like, he uses the Greek word phileo. He says, I like you. I think you're a cool guy. I think you're noble. I think you're doing amazing things. I appreciate you. And then Jesus asks again, do you love me? And Jesus, uh, Peter says a second time, well, I th- he uses that word phileo. Well, I think you're, you know, I, I admire you. You know, I, you're, you're admirable. And what is Jesus doing? Jesus is trying to show Peter that his love is not enough, and that's okay that he's unconditionally being loved by, by Jesus. Jesus says, feed my sheep. That's one of the most incredible verses in the Bible. Here's Jesus' CEO, right? And he's, he's, he's just like maybe hours beforehand is denying Jesus Christ. That is incredible. Peter is called. And I just want to challenge you and I this morning. How much do you live in the sense of your calling? Like, you know, like... Number one, have you defined your calling? Maybe we don't know all the details of it. Maybe we don't know what God's going to do specifically. But do you have a sense in your life when trouble happens, when persecution begins, and acts like in Acts chapter 12, that I'm called, that we are called, that I'm called out of this world and into the beloved body of Christ. I'm called into a mission, you know. I'm called into something that's bigger than me. Uh, I love Martin Luther. He said this, and I quote this a lot, but I love it. Martin Luther said, I am nothing. My call is everything. Isn't that amazing? When our calling becomes our compass, it gives us so much context in trouble when persecution begins. And you know what? Persecution will happen in your life, and it won't even be related to what you're doing in the kingdom. It could be for some other reason, because you're a Christian or whatever. But Romans 8.28, if we understand that we're called, and number two, that God loves us, that we are in the unconditional love of God, that we are in his hand, and that no man can ever pluck us out of the hand of God in John 8.28, that we are in his hands that in, in Ephesians chapter 1, and 85 times or 87 times or how many times, I don't know how it is in, in the book of Ephesians, that we are in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, and we're not in trouble. And so the bottom line in Christianity is, is when we interpret, when we look at God's plan, we've got to understand that this is the end game in God's plan in our life is for our good and his glory. God is for us. 
When we suffer, when the church suffers, and we see the church suffering in Acts chapter 12, remember this, that all suffering in the believer's life is to promote you as God promoted Job. Okay? One of the most amazing books of the Bible, the book of Job, and I think one of the most under-taught, under-preached-on books in the Bible. It's an amazing book. <coughs> one of the, it is probably the oldest written book of the Bible. Job is promoted after trouble. And you know what's interesting? God doesn't answer all of Job's questions. Job has a lot of questions, doesn't he? God doesn't answer them. God just says, can you humble yourself? Can you just understand that suffering in your life is not punitive? When you and I suffer, the first thing we do is we get subjective. We start looking at our lives like, what did I do wrong? This is punishment for something. Why? Because we, because we are guilty creatures by nature. By nature. Okay? Human nature is a slave to the God of comfort and of the now. And when we start suffering, we're like, God, I don't need this right now. I need something else. Uh, I need to, I don't need difficulty. And when we start thinking like that, we forget what Job said in Job 13, 15, that though he slay me, I will put my hope in him. I think if we can have this, if we can have this attitude, that's when our theology is translated into rhema. That is when the word becomes theory from theory and becomes experience in our life. And we have to do that by faith. Let's look at this last verse and we'll close. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, verses, verses 1 through 3. It says this, For we know that if the tent, which is our physical body, our earthly house is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan. It's like camping, you know. It's like Wes and I went camping with a bunch of guys. He's laughing, but we went camping. Well, he went camping. I didn't. I did something different. We were camping together, but you know, when we camp, we're in. A, we're in like in this. We're we're used to living a different kind of life, but we've kind of voluntarily put ourselves in these tents and outside and out lacking a lot of things and I don't know sometimes there's groaning that's going on right and um, I don't know I thought it would be fun I went there I was super prepared and uh, and then halfway through the day I was going to Walmart and then that night I was going to Walmart and I was going to get a coffee at Duncan's and and um, I showed up with a Pilates mat which I thought was a yoga mat and I never heard the end of that. You know, it's like camping. This life, this is not our home. Our hope is not in a better life here. Our hope is really that that when this earthly temple is dissolved, we have a home that's being made for us in the heavenlies. I just want to finish with this. That um, Look at this part of the verse where it says that what is mortal may be swallowed up in life. Uh, you know, that's a couple verses down that what is mortal might be swallowed up in life. And I was thinking about this. This is what was happening in Acts chapter 12, that in all of, in all of their trouble, in all of their pressure, uh, in, the, in all of their mortality, that they were, be, they were being killed, they were being persecuted. 
Um, you and I, we suffer a lot of mortality. We have a lot of mortality in this room, and we see it sometimes, especially when we're working together as a team when we're starting off. You're going to see a lot of my mortality. We're going to see a lot of each other's mortality. And you know what? Either we can focus on managing the mortality, or we can get we can function. Uh, we can like work on on behavioral modification of the mortality. That's not the mind of God. Mortality needs to be swallowed up in the life of the spirit in Zoe life. And I love this because the Greek word there is Zoe, which means it's a spiritual life. It's a life that can't be killed. It's resurrection life. It's a life that Jesus had, that Jesus was murdered. He was crucified, but he rose in Romans 8, verse 11 on, on the third day. That is Zoe life. And you know something? When we have this Zoe life in our life, because we're, we are taking the word of God, we're believing it, we're understanding that the word of God can't be bound, it cannot be limited, it cannot be defeated. And when we apply that in our life by faith, you know what happens? We begin to live a life that can't be that can't be limited, it can't be calculated, and it can't be predicted. And our mortality, our humanness is swallowed up by life. And somehow we just have all, all of this spiritual lubrication that kind of deals with all the friction that can happen in relationships. And in Romans, in Acts chapter 12, all the persecution. Because persecution, the attacks of the devil, pressure, all of these things can actually try to make your, can actually try to make your Christianity very small, uh, our work very small. It can make um, our marriages very small, our families, our businesses very small. But when we understand that we have <clears throat> a life, a word of life that is powerful, that cannot be, that cannot be bound, it cannot be limited, and it cannot be stopped by persecution. At that point, that just swallows up all the mortality, doesn't it? And we're no longer focusing on the failure, on the pressure, on the pressure. We're no longer, because we have something much bigger. You know what? You know, like okay, someone forgot to bring the keys to the building. That was me the other day. So what? We have a bigger. We have a bigger God than that. We have a bigger. We have life that's much bigger than that. And so, our life is not based on people's failures, on people's shortcomings, but it's based on Jesus Christ. And when that happens, and we're facing pressure and persecution and we can grow and not be stopped amen Amen. okay let's close in prayer father we thank you